Welcome to the Alien Probe Podcast. Today we'll be discussing the FEMA conspiracy. And I've got recently named Mopar Kevin, because we're going to be bringing another Kevin on. So, uh, how's it going, Kevin? Hey, how you doing, Doug? Thanks for having me back again. So our ratings are going to go through the roof now. I know, yeah, we got, (laughs) I know. You know how to rock it. So what's new? Uh, Same old stuff. Um, you got a couple things to talk about yeah. before we jump into FEMA. So We're going to talk with you. Kevin and I are adopted. You're adopted too, right? Yes, yes. correct. So we're both adopted. We've, we're going to, we're, we're going to tell, we're, bear with us. We're going to tell a short story before we get into the, uh, the, the FEMA, uh, situation. We're going to talk about how we met, um, a friend of mine, a Dr. Bill, who's on the, who's on the show pretty regularly. Uh, did a um, dissertation or paper on the case of the wandering mom. And the mom is uh, the same mother that Kevin and I have. Um, I did a 23andMe because my second son, Johnny, um, said he didn't think I was related to him. (laughs) Johnny. (laughs) Well, Johnny's got, it's kind of funny because... Robert, my oldest son, and I can't mention Johnny without mentioning Robert, our producer, because every time I mention Johnny, oh, you always mention your favorite son, Johnny. <laughs> so, Robert was from my first marriage. Yes, I've been married three times. Um, so Johnny, <laughs> Johnny's like says he he's like I don't I, I don't think we're related. You need to do a DNA test. So I did. Uh, so we did the test. This test ended up showing that he was indeed my son. And it also revealed that we all were, at least Johnny and I and Brandon and uh, and Robert, are were fifty uh, percent Ashkenazi Jewish. Wow, I never heard of that before. Um, it also, yeah, it also gave uh, several second and third cousins. Um, by the way, this is twenty three and me that I did, and um, I. I reached out to a couple of the cousins. I didn't get any. Obviously, being adopted, I wanted to find out. Well, who's my? I, I don't know who my real parent. I had. I, I should mention. I, I don't. Uh, we've talked about this before. I had an awesome upbringing by my dad, little league coach, scoutmaster, taught me construction. So what happened to you then? I don't know. I went downhill after he left. <laughs> went to the military and then got really screwed up. Um. At that point, uh, Bill used the CBI California Birth Index and searched for males born on my birthday that gave 28 names, which is interesting. Uh, we knew, Bill and I went to, grew up together in the Bay Area, and we personally knew two of the boys from a list. I researched the other, well, he researched the other names and determined that 22 were living or dead and leaving six names as possible for uh, my real birth name. The CBI only gives real birth names with the mother's surname and birth date. Um, he suggested I do another DNA test on Ancestry. And uh, that came up with a 25% DNA match um, with uh, a guy named Ray Dillon, who turned out to be um, my half-brother, same mother, uh, born in 1954. So this kind of kicked off the found my mom, uh, Ray informed me that I had another half-brother, and uh, I, in fact, I was born in 59, I've got Kevin here, 
you know, that we um, got came in contact with each other, um, which formed you know our relationship. I don't see like I don't have a whole lot of contact with the rest of the gang. Um, then there's uh, you're a twenty five percent match, so same mom again, mm-hmm. Becky. Uh, born in 1962, a 25% DNA match, same mom. Um, Kevin and Becky were born in Alameda County, and then mom's maiden name was Elsom. Um, of the six possible births in Alameda County that could be me, one had the mother maiden name of Elsom. That's how we, that's how I figured that part out. I think I didn't, I don't know what the timing was of it. I don't know if we knew it was Elsom before or after we all connected um my birth name was robert p walker which is you know an awesome birth name. that is an awesome name i think it should be a doctor in front of that you know i don't know you know people work say it should be a senator or something oh, that, I don't yeah, know. That, that, well robert yeah. p walker who run for president <laughs> which gives us the birth name surname of walker which as it turns out later in the story i don't know where he came up with that uh, i think that's a name that Kay probably gave upon my birth, but I don't know if, uh, I don't know where that Walker name came from. Um, California is very strict, as you know, adoption. Are you, were you able to get any, do- uh, birth, the original birth certificate? I do have my original birth certificate. Which has your other name? Um, I can't remember. It was, it's a microfiche, copy of a microfiche. You don't have, oh, so you had another name too? Uh-huh, I did. Um, how'd you get that? Anyway, next subject. (laughs) (laughs) California has very strict adoption laws that make it very difficult for adopted children to find out who their birth parents are. I actually don't need mine anymore. I know everything I need to know at this point. Doug's real mom was uh, born Kay Elsom in Petersboro, Northamptonshire in England in 1926 with her mother's name was Bonham. Maiden name was Bonham. Interesting. John Bonham. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, we could be rich. Led Zeppelin. We could. We could be rich. Kay had two sisters. Sheila, born in 1928, and I, obviously this isn't a UFO subject, but it is. It, it, we all, also our tagline is everything weird, and you can certainly say that this isn't a typical. It's been an interesting journey, <laughs> and, it, and it's still blossoming. It's still blossoming. <laughs> Kay had two sisters. Sheila, born in 1928, and Gwendolyn in 1930. Uh, Sheila was married in 1949, and Gwendolyn was married in 1951. So, Kay, with that, Kay, our mother, immigrated to the U.S., I believe. uh, um, She married Dwayne, who is in the military, was, uh, we don't know, and had two children, Lori, born in May, uh, born in 1952, and then uh, she passed in 2018 in Peabody, Massachusetts. Ray was born in 54, and um, he lives in Pennsylvania now. Kay and uh, Kay and Dylan separated shortly after Ray was born. She probably moved to Alameda. That's what uh, makes some sense. Um, at this point, she got pregnant, gave birth to me in 59, and then I was adopted in, in May of 59, and then adopt, 
did by my father uh, in July of 59. So, 13 months after uh, my birth, uh, Kate gave birth to you, so we're 13 months apart. Okay. She's a busy girl. Yes. yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. In uh, 1960, um, Kay married Thomas in 61 in Alameda. Um, in 62, Becky was born, our other sister. They're piling up now. Um, and most recently, the reason we brought this up, I was contacted uh, by yet another half-sister. I won't be using any names. We're just starting our relationship, and, and I don't want to really, you know, I, I'm really excited. Because now I know who my father is. So she, uh, she came up on uh, and sent me a note. We came up as a 25% DNA match, which right. gives us the half-brother uh, and sister uh, link and um, so then it was paternal so we knew that and we've chatted back and forth on email so we're just now you know again I don't want to mention what the name is or anything at this point um, but so now I know who dad is so it kind of tied this journey together finally right. you know you're still in search of. Mm -hmm. um, so I feel very fortunate that um, this person reached out to me. I hate to say this person's kind of dry and weird, but um, I'm excited. I have the information. Um, hopefully we can, you know, have, you know, be able to be in contact with each other and meet hopefully one day. Um, looks like at this point, uh, Kay married Leland in 1971, and um, they didn't have any kids, which is surprising. <laughs> Maybe she's getting a little old. I think she's worn out by then. Yeah. <laughs> so, Mr. Smith passed in 1991. At this point, it looks like uh, Kay moved to Massachusetts, and uh, she passed away um, in 1998. So after Mr. Smith passed away, um, Kay, our mom, moved to Massachusetts to live with Lori, um, our half-sister. And uh, Lori took care of her. And that uh, Lori was taking care of both Becky and Kay at the time. That's about all I know about that. Uh, so we know, and then you knew Lori. Yes, I met Lori. Um, uh, through the research that uh, our person did, we were able to uh, actually going through the myriad maze that California makes you go through in order to, and, and at the time, most of the stuff was underground. And um, I'll certainly tell you how that process went when we're not on the when air. we're not. <laughs> but uh, anyway, and uh, through that we found, uh, we found Lori. And, uh, and of course we found the death certificate on record of Kay passing away. Uh, I talked to Lori on a Tuesday, and she flew out on a Friday, yeah. and uh, we spent time together. And she had a myriad of pictures, and it was interesting to see that whole when when you're adopted um, to the audience. When you're adopted, um, you you lo you long to see people that look like you. I mean, you're adopted family, and you, you, whether you have a good life or a bad life, nobody really looks like you. So when you see a picture of someone that 
resembles you as, as when, when uh, Doug and I, as handsome as we are, we look very much alike. <laughs> and uh, you can tell when we're together certain features that are the same. So um, that's that, that means a lot to the folks that are adopted. So. Yeah, it's now. How was your upbringing? How was your adoptive upbringing? I mean, were you, it was a good life. It was. Yeah, I was comfortable. I'll just say I was comfortable. I had, you know, my parents were were older. I don't know the circumstances of my adoption because that's very vague. I mean, certainly when you're young, they tell you that the angels dropped you into their lap and they chose you. Did and, you know you were you adopted? Know, all uh, the, the whole. So the, how I found out I was adopted was kind of a, a weird situation. Um, I was in uh, ten years old. I was in fifth grade, and you you were they were just touching on um, talking about your characteristics characteristics of your mom and your dad. So your mom has brown hair, your dad has gray hair, or whatever. Yeah. And then you you write down all that information, blue eyes. That and then you get to the bottom, and you find out you know what matches your characteristics. So I came home with this project and said, <laughs> Mom, Dad, uh, I, I need to write down the color of your hair because they're going to determine you know what things that I got from you guys. And they said, okay, we've got something we need to tell you. <laughs> and that's when it turned out that, you know. And, of course, that's the story where, you know, they said that they made it sound like you. they walked into this room and there was a bunch of babies. And they said, we'll take him. And, you know, and you were chosen, so you're special, you know. But uh, we all know that that isn't exactly true. So what I found out was that from Lori, which is the sister that we that have that had passed away, she indicated that she had memories of me being dropped off at a house. And she described the house, which is actually the house that I remember when I was very young. And I wasn't officially adopted until I was six years old. And the circumstance behind that was, is that my parents, my dad uh, was uh, a Navy contractor. He was in the Navy. He was doing some research work for IBM. He had to go to um, Denver. And in order to take me out of state, because I was being fostered, I guess, by them, they had to initiate whatever paperwork was necessary to make me legal and, and theirs. Um, that prompted the changing of a birth certificate. I have the weirdest looking birth certificate, and, and uh, Doug, I'll show that to you sometime. Um, and uh, how I had to do all this research is when I had to get a clearance at the airport, I had to get a lot of stuff cleared up and had to dig up a lot of so stuff. So you weren't so, officially adopted until six? Until, until, I was, uh, until I was six years old. Yeah. you remember any? Yeah. I remember the house. Uh, you know, I remember, you know, some of my earliest memories of the house that, that Lori described, um, um, the color of the house, the picket fence out front, uh, that type of stuff. Um, uh, I do remember uh, all of that, but um, uh, other than that, I don't remember. I don't remember Lori. Now, here's the thing that's the kicker is why doesn't Lori remember you? And I don't know if she had it confused with you or me. Yeah. Because uh, her story was that Kay would go out on the town and leave uh, Lori with her brother, she would say, uh, having to take care of her brother. Now, there's eight years difference, I think, is what we determined. At least for her and I, is eight years different. Yeah. And uh, she said that she'd have to go to the neighbors and ask for food because there, was no, there wasn't any food in the house and, and stuff. So, again, I don't know if she was remembering you or remembering me because I don't know where you fit into this picture. Well, I was adopted. Oh, right away. It's within six. Oh, okay, days. okay. So that so maybe two months. I was maybe she was remembering me. I, so then, uh, after they gave me up for after Kay gave me up for adoption, she told Lori never to mention me again, and that uh, anybody that asked, hey, I thought you had a son. She said, oh, he died. Is there any indication of why Kay operated like this? <laughs> 
you know, I, I don't, did Lori have any insight as I, to what? It didn't seem to be money money voted, motivated no. like you're going after child because back then child support didn't exist. You know, you didn't. You know, the guy you made a baby and the guy left. You're you're on your own. So I don't know except for the fact that she just catted around it and wasn't cautious about who she slept with or or doing anything to control getting pregnant. She just she got pregnant. She dealt with it. She either gave up the child for adoption or she kept him. Um, it seems like she got rid of the boys and kept the girls. So, yeah, it's yeah, it's, it's, it's a weird. It's maybe a weird that was thing. it. You know. Yeah. Yep. Well, here's a picture of dad, and I wish I looked this good. <laughs> <laughs> He's a handsome devil. He is. I don't know what the hell happened. I know. I, <laughs> oh, I didn't hell. get that. I didn't get Dad's look. He is a handsome individual. Well, you know, I haven't seen a picture of you, you know, a few years ago. I wasn't that good. I <laughs> guarantee. He's, he's a handsome. I guarantee. Well, they say that things skip a generation. So, yeah. Well, so you haven't you had you made some handsome <laughs> handsome sons. So well, he was a cap. He was so. a decorated captain in the in the navy, and yeah. um, you know, I wish I could have. Uh, yeah. Wish I could have met him. I yeah. sure would have been complicated. <laughs> Yeah, that would have been, you know, so... And we talked about that a little bit in our previous episode about John Teeter when we were talking about time travel. said, we yeah. want to go back in time to meet your family, you know, and, and uh, yeah, we, we kind of vacillate on that a little bit. Yeah, it's it's interesting. So, with that, that's a story yeah, of Mopar, Mo yeah. Kevin, and yeah, I. That's it. And uh, now you know how we, <laughs> or don't know, and what we don't know. So, uh, let's talk about... Uh, the FEMA conspiracy, Kevin, what do you got there? Well, so one of the things that, uh, you know, when, when Doug invites me up here to do these things that I always find that's super interesting is that, you know, he talks about the uh, paranormal, the aliens, uh, uh, Bigfoot, um, those type of conspiracies. And those are all fun to talk about. But what's really scary is ones that are closer to home. And one that I was always freaked out about is, is FEMA. And... Uh, uh, the thing about FEMA is, uh, it, for those of you who don't know, that's the Federal Emergency Management uh, Agency. And they take, on the surface, they're supposed to come um, and during the times of crisis, a disaster like a hurricane or an earthquake, where there's mass displacement of people. They come in with food and water, medical and, uh, and trailers, uh, places for you to live. But under the surface, and after 9-11, their scope of responsibility changed drastically. And um, when Doug invited me to come up here and say, you know, pick a topic, that one has always been something that's uh, freaked me out, both on a personal level and what I've researched online. Um, uh, the first idea of FEMA came out in 1803 when there was a, um, a disaster relief fund developed by the government. And they determined at that time on the surface they needed an agency that would oversee disasters. And that started in 1803. The conversation of that started in 1803. But FEMA didn't officially become an agency until 1979 when Jimmy Carter signed an executive order. And I want to touch, I want to touch a little bit about an executive order. Those of you that are in the know or, um, or not, um, the executive order is what the president signs um, by himself, obviously, and um, it's a directive that's issued to um, other agencies, um, uh, other departments, uh, to federal employees, 
and it's once signed, it's enacted within 30 days of whatever he uh, signs. Um, he doesn't have to go to Congress. He doesn't have to go to the Senate. He can make a decision about something with a stroke of a pen. Now, um, some of you out there might think, oh, well, that really doesn't mean much. He's, okay, well, I can tell you this. In 1942, the Japanese were interned, and these Japanese were American citizens, and they were interned by the stroke of the pen. An executive order required them to be scooped up and put into internment camps. So when you think that executive orders don't carry any weight, they do. And so um, getting back to, uh, to FEMA, um, when, after 9-11, um, it was determined that they needed to have a little more control of, um, of us, uh, society in general. And they wanted to be able to establish what would happen if we were literally attacked. And if that's on the surface, they're saying, if some company invaded us or attacked us, there'd be anarchy. So how can we, you know, make things safe for everybody? And, and so they established, uh, they decided that they were going to have FEMA become an actual department of Homeland Security that, uh, that their director answers solely to the President of the United States and the Secretary of Defense. Again, FEMA is supposed to help us out in disasters, but they answer to the Secretary of Defense. Okay? Not housing, Secretary of Defense. That's the part that's... Um, that's interesting. That's, that's, really, that's really bad. So, right after they established that they would answer to FEMA, they created what they called fusion centers. Have you heard of that before? No. Okay, well, fusion centers, there's 10 fusion centers established throughout the United States. It also corresponds with the 10 territories in the United States that during the time of crisis, if the president declares martial law, the nation is divided into 10 sections. Each section, divided by 10, has one governor. It's a governor that's appointed by the president that oversees their district. And each one of those districts today has a place called a fusion center. These fusion centers that are in operations as we speak gather intelligence from all law enforcement agencies and from the um, uh, CIA and the FBI regarding any activities in that zone that are um, through communication, through um, uh, any type of criminal activities, they, they're called fusion centers in this respect that they fuse all this information into one location that the LEOs, law enforcement agencies, can contact to see if there's... Now, there's, they'll tell you on the surface, and I, and I just saw this yesterday, on the surface they say, yes, we do have fusion centers, but all we're doing is gathering information. So what information are they gathering? Well, they're gathering cell phone calls, they're gathering, and they're looking for buzzwords, they're looking for, they say, trends. Not people, but trends. But just recently it was established that they also looked at leaders of uh, what they determined to be insurgents, like uh, the head of, uh, well, like some of the uh, organizations that are protesting. And... Um, They'll look at them and, and consider what kind of a threat they are and establish this list. Now, if there's a time of crisis and we go into these 10 zones, um, inside each one of these zones is what they call a relocation center. These relocation centers, the smallest one is 11,000 acres. Oh. And they are, um, I've actually seen pictures of them. They look like jails. They're surrounded by double 20-foot fence with barbed wire fence pointing in. 
But the most freaky thing you'll see about those is, is that there's playgrounds in there. So they call them relocation centers. And during time of crisis, um, they want to be able to have people come in there and keep them safe. Well, the bob wire is there, um, but on the sign on one of the buildings, it said, if you, uh, if you aid anybody in escaping this facility, you can be uh, arrested on a felony. And, so it's an uh, internment center. Yeah, so it's, it's scary sounds like, stuff. Sounds like an internment center. It's just like, really scary stuff. Um, so I'll give you an example of some things that I, I found. Um, just in, in 2010, the Marines were giving an order called Rex 84. Rex 84 was a directive for them to conduct military exercises on the, on the, in the United States to quell disorder. Now, um, Doug, I'm sure you know about quasi-comitatus, which is a Latin term for um, a section in the Constitution that says that we cannot use the military on our soil. The military cannot be used as a police force on our soil. But it, in the time of martial law, they can. And so Rex 84 is initiated, and it's in use today for the Marines to go and practice um, quelling civil disturbances. And those listeners right now that are listening right now, um, those of you out of the country, you may have seen in the news reports of all the civil unrest that we've had over the last year. And what amazed me is, is that in some communities, they don't, they want to get rid of the police departments altogether yeah. and they're not doing anything to quell these disturbances. They just say, you know what? It's like in Seattle, they cordon off a whole area saying this now belongs yeah. to us. You well, know, they went downtown and they destroyed the whole downtown area. And the police virtually just watched. And what? Why is this Rex eighty four? Isn't that designed to? Rex eighty four is designed, but it only until the president declares martial law. That's the key. So um, once he determines martial law, then um, he can activate Rex eighty four, which he can activate the military to do. Now, um, I know the National Guard was called into some places in order to quell some of these disturbances, but. Um, in this case, um, I was I was amazed that nobody did anything. They just let them run amok. And they say even in Portland today, you can't even go downtown anymore. And Portland's a beautiful city. But anyway, so that's that's one of the things that's in place right now is, is Rex 84. And um, those of you that, that, again, that are listening, all this information I'm giving you, you can Google it. You Google it right now. I'm taking this information straight from the net, straight from Homeland Security. I'm showing Doug. This yeah. is Homeland Security label on this, that it's their own documentation. And, of course, they're, they're here for our protection, according to them. But one thing that I will say that will freak you guys out, and because it did me, is that several executive orders were established during the Obama administration. And I'll go down just a short list. An executive order was signed by our President Obama called 10990, and it allows the government to take over all modes of transportation and control of highways and seaports. 10995 allows the government to seize and control the communications networks. 10997 allows the government to take over all electrical power, gas, petroleum, fuels, and minerals. 10998 allows the government to seize all means of transportation, including your personal owned vehicles. Um, of course, highways, seaports, and waterways. 10999 allows the government to take over all food resources. Now, again, this is during the time of crisis. 
1100 allows the government to mobilize civilians into work brigades under government supervision. That means you'll be forced to work. Again, all by a stroke of a pen. 11,001 allows the government to take over all health, education, and welfare functions. 11002 designates the Postmaster General to operate a national registration of all persons. 11003 allows the government to take over all airports, aircraft, including commercial aircraft. 11004 allows a housing and finance authority to relocate communities, build new housing with public funds, designate areas to be abandoned, and establish new locations for any population. In other words, they can move you. 11005 allows the government to take over railroads, inland waterways, and public storage facilities. 11051 specifies the responsibility of the Office of Emergency Planning and gives authorization to put all executive orders into effect immediately in times of increased international tensions and economy or financial crisis. I can keep going down the list. Um, there's a ton of these executive orders, and again, these were all signed with a pen. These have taken away your rights. What do you think would happen if they enacted the majority or parts of these? What do you think the reaction of the people would be? So, I, so you, you look at it in, in stages. Uh, in, in, in my opinion, if you had civil unrest, the first thing you'd want to do is, is control the population. Once you control the population, you'd have to have a place to relocate them. Hence, the, the, the real rehabilitation centers or whatever they want relocation centers, whatever they want to call them. If they're controlling just by these that they can control what you drive, how you get there. Um, one thing that's really freaky about these um, relocation centers is they always have a rail yard right next to them. So in other words, you can be taken by train. <laughs> and, and like Nazi Germany. Yeah, just like, you know, yeah, just like that. Yeah. Yeah, just, I uh, think the people wouldn't react well to this type of, it just feels like there's already an undertone of dis dissent against the government right now. And I just think this, and they can get wiped out if you try to go up against it. Because we get it. Yeah, you get shot. <laughs> yeah. But there's, a, there's an underlying tone right now of um, just um, non-support of what the government does. And I just, there's a lot of people with guns. A lot of people. I think that I think that has a lot to do with them not just being able to railroad us. But let's look at what happens over the last year. You know, through um, telling us to wear masks all the time, which is which is fine. Yeah. Um, uh, having this pandemic, and then you know what's frustrating is is that I understand during the time of the pandemic, you know, they want you to wear masks. You, you couldn't go anywhere. Some people couldn't work, so they want to they want to provide you money. They want to provide you you know where you can eat and, and and that type of thing. Suspend you paying rent, so these people that have homes can't make their mortgage payments. But that's all fine. That's all well and good. That was made. A decision was made. But today, they have the shots you can get. But they're still, you turn on the news, they go, well, you can get the shot, but now we have a new strain. So you still got to be worried. You know, you, you, you could still yeah. die. Oh, now the kids are affected by it. You know, so it's yeah. like the, this state of fear is just, you know, it's scary. It's just, it's really scary. I think, and this is, this is my personal opinion, is that this whole pandemic thing, somebody sat back and said, let's do something. Let's just try to force this on the people and see what happens. You can't go to work, which people, that's fine. But, <laughs> but some people didn't get any yeah. money. But you can't go to work. You got to wear a mask all the time. That's yeah. mandated. Yeah. Okay. 
and let's sit back and see how the people push back. Well, you had some people push back, but for the majority, the majority of people would get on your, t your tail for not wearing a mask. So I think that, you know, if the government were to come in and, and declare a national emergency, um, look what happened in Texas. I mean, they, they, didn't have, they didn't have any power or anything, you know? Yeah, that was crazy. I mean, it, it's just absolutely ridiculous what went on down there. And, uh, and since they weren't on the national grid, um, they couldn't tap into anything to get power down there. So I, I, this FEMA thing just always just freaked me out. Um, the taking any time a government can take over something, what, what, what they perceive to be a threat, or create fusion centers where they have information that if you know if I call you on the phone, Doug, and we have a conversation just like we are now, and um, um, and it's something that's a buzzword that they're looking for, they they tag onto us and they yeah. do a complete investigation without any type of you know warrant or anything. They know all about you, and and some people will say, "Well, I got nothing to hide." Well, that's not the point. That isn't the they're point. Looking, they'll find something. Yeah, they can find I mean, something. Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, what we yeah. think is harmless. <laughs> okay, and, and here's the thing, those of you that, that may or may not know this, Guantanamo Bay, uh, not, that, not that I'm against that, but those people that are in there have never been officially charged. They're suspected terrorists, but they have not any due process at all. They've not been in court. They've not had any type of uh, um, an arraignment. They're just there because they've been deemed a terrorist. So what would stop them from saying, oh, Doug, you know, you're a terrorist. Uh, yeah, you you're know, a threat to you know. Security. In your line of work, you deal with sensitive chemicals. Maybe they, maybe there's a a, a, number, a number of chem, a number of chemicals and mixed together can make something very serious. I go, oh look at Doug, he bought all this stuff. Yeah. You know, oh my gosh, you know, he's a he's a, he could be a terrorist, you know. Yeah. And uh, and put you and incarcerate you and keep you because even any anybody can be put in Guantanamo Bay if you're deemed to be a. And yeah. a, a terrorist, a threat to the United States. Is it still so, open? I thought they closed. I thought they were talking about closing it, um, but I haven't heard officially that they have. Yeah. So, uh, but all they're not—they might be, be closing the prison, but they're not. They're still going to do something here in the in the. Yeah, I mean, is they're just the closing that. Doesn't yeah. mean it's not going to happen somewhere. Yeah. So. Um, Wasn't that the prison where the guard had the. Leash around, leash in the collar around a prisoner's neck, I'm and they were sure. walking it like a dog. That might have been sure. overseas. That might have been over in Iraq or something. One of the things that also came to light was um, FEMA uh, has established that they may use urban gangs as auxiliary police oh, to ensure God. order. <laughs> really? Oh yes. <laughs> I'm, I what, read that. What could, I'm like, what could possibly go wrong, Kevin? <laughs> I'm just like we better lock ourselves yeah. in our. Yeah, that might be a problem. You got the Bloods and the Crips are <laughs> coming and knocking on your door, man. <laughs> anyway, so that that just you know that just and uh, when you invited me up here, that's what I needed to uh, to touch a little bit on. Um, those of you again that have, that are listening to this, do your own research. This is stuff that I have taken off the net that I know about um, uh, through my uh, organizations that I've worked for, and. Um, not that I had any top security clearance or anything, but I did interact with the representatives of uh, Homeland Security, and uh, their power is absolute. And anytime you have that without any due process, um, an example of that too is what's going on at the border right now. You know, um, uh, I'm not for or against, so nobody write into the stick into the thing. <laughs> nobody write but, into uh, us. <laughs> our previous president made some established some things to lock down the border, and. Um, 
in that you had to wait in Mexico before coming in to apply for asylum or whatever. And now um, that's been lifted. And one of the things that I heard that made a lot of sense is, is that you don't eliminate a policy until you have another policy to put into place. There's no policy right now. They just opened the doors and said, come on in. And there's hundreds of thousands of people coming. What are you going to do? Yeah. You know, I, immigration is great, but is this going more towards civil unrest? Yeah. That's another thing that a lot of people are upset about that, you know, it's, uh, we don't want to get into the no, political. No, no, I don't want to get into, get into the political, uh, you know, no. because everybody's very passionate about that. And, it's, and, uh, yeah, it's and, very, uh, very polarizing right now. Yeah, exactly. And I don't really want to get but, a million emails about how I should think like a certain way. <laughs> but there was a, there's a very uh, interesting talk show host that uh, always says that the first steps to losing a country is losing your borders, language, and culture. And um, uh, we have uh, we've always been a melting pot, and we're actually nobody here is is, is Native American. Yeah, we all came from somewhere else, except for, we just, except we... for the uh, Native Americans who were here originally. They're the only true uh, Americans. The rest of us are all in here. But what I, the, the point I'm trying to get back to is is any type there's civil unrest, your government can come in and take over and tell you what needs to be done, and why would they establish, spend all this money for all these internment camps that, as I said, the smallest one is 11,000 acres. There's one in each zone. There's 10 zones. Each person, each zone has a governor that's appointed by the president, which means that he has no one to answer to but the president. There's no legislation. There's no Congress. There's no Senate. There's just somebody who's a dictator. Is there a buildings on these 11,000 yes. acres? Yes. Okay, yes. so it looks like yeah. barracks or something. Yeah. No, they're actually... Apartments or they're actually buildings. They look like prisons. Oh, they're really? actually buildings. Yeah, and um, where is this? Uh, well, there. So each zone, there's ten zones in the United States, and you have to go online and look where these zones are, how they're drawn out, and then in each one is a relocation center. So um, um, I know the one that I've looked at numerous times is in Denver, and uh, we is that the airport. Yeah, we talk about that all the time. <laughs> But they, that's, uh, but, the, but, the, but the part that will freak you out for those that you want to do the research on it is seeing a playground in the middle of a prison. Yeah. And there's no one there right now. So there's no one. They, they film it, and there's no one there. So it's, it's, it's not an actual prison that they keep prisoners in. It's there for some, some weird So they're reason. really kind of thinking they're going to need it. <laughs> well, we don't need not necessarily need nuclear weapons when we have them, but are we going to need... They're thinking we're going to need this. Well, under the guise of a national emergency, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's... You know, people have always worried about another government coming in and attacking us. I don't think that's going to happen because, you know, we whether or not you like it or not, mutual assured destruction, you know, is still assured that, you know, they lob at us, we're going to lob at them. Yeah. So that's a, moot, that's a moot point. We're all going to be croaking then, but... But I think it's more more like, um, let's say this, they decide tomorrow that we're not going to get any more gas. That's just the way it is. We're not driving anymore. Yeah. You know. Well, that's going to create civil unrest right then and there. So what do you do when you have civil unrest? Well, we got to quiet these crowds down. Well, how do we quiet these crowds down? You come to them. You tell them, okay, you stay in your home, or we're going to put you in this uh, nice little facility over here with the slides and the swings for the kiddies. So. Um, so, and this is stuff that I've read 
you know there's a ton of stuff out there that I'm not privy to. Yeah. So, so what else you got on that? So it sounds pretty frightening. I don't know. But, you know, things about the government are, uh, <laughs> they do have a tendency to, uh, Okay. There's a, uh, some people are saying that they're trying to do a population control. Um, in April of 2014, an individual named Snopes uh, posted a document that was immediately taken down, according to what I've read, that FEMA was marking houses by political affiliation to round people up to put in these camps. Um, um, and trying to establish who um, is a threat. So if there is any type of uh, upheaval that they know that, well, John Jones over here, uh, and that's a made up name. So sorry, John Jones, <laughs> yeah. uh, John Smith, John Doe. Um, he's a political activist where we need to round him up and put him into a, um, into a facility. So, um, um, that's very, very real, Doug. And I know when I leave here, you're going to probably do some no, yeah. some reading on this because uh, uh, um, uh, but the the theory about how they're going to incorporate people into the camps um, it has has been started since uh, the uh, first Bush talked about a new world order, and any time that they tried to initiate anything, uh, they knew they were going to get resistance. But what made it go jump leaps and bounds was 9-11. 9-11, um, the Patriot Act, just took so many of our rights away. I mean, just so many. Whether or not you believe in that, you think it's a good thing or a bad thing, it took all of your rights, uh, well, not all your rights, but a majority of your rights away. Um, a, good ex a good example of that is the no-fly list. Nobody knows how you get on the no-fly list. Yeah. But the main thing is, how do you get off the no-fly list? <laughs> if you've got a name that's associated with a terrorist organization, but it's just your surname that you were given when you, were, you yeah. lived here all your life, and you go down to take a flight and they say, you can't go, there's no avenue for you to go and say, that's not me, and they verify, oh, you're right, Charlie, it's not you. Um, you're off the list. Yeah. You're on the list, that's it. Now think about that. You can never fly again. They can't get off the list. They can't at get all. off the list. <laughs> people have people have hired attorneys to see what if they and take it to court. No, because first of all, it's not an official document. It's just a no fly list. Yeah. It's not a you know like a uh, a warrant for your arrest or um, uh, you lost a lawsuit and it's a judgment against you. It's just somebody determined that John Doe can't fly. And well, so and and you know working in an environment that I worked in before, I was called many times to the ticket counters for somebody that popped up on the no-fly list who, in, and again, judging by what they've told us, um, didn't appear to have any ties to anything. Of course, again, if you were going to do something terrorized, you would get a normal guy looking guy. You wouldn't look at the stereotypical person. Right. But um, they uh, so were on the list. So you'd have to go to the counter you know, they, they were and, rate uh, because oh, they, they would, so once they're there, if they protested that, we'd have to put a call into the feds. And have them come in and talk to them. And, and <laughs> I, I sat many times in in a room listening to um, them have a conversation with these people. And sometimes it was a family, and it was the wife and the kids could fly, but the husband couldn't. You know, and, and uh, 
uh, I, I'm not saying that all men are bad. Don't write in everything. I'm just saying in that particular sense, <laughs> all men are you, bad. You know, that particular sense, um, they weren't allowed to fly. And um, um, uh, you have the, um, I, I just, I guess you'd take a train anywhere you wanted to go, unless you wanted to go to Hawaii. I guess you'd take, have to take a rowboat over there because. <laughs> But uh, that's that again. That's the power of your government, and that just it just. I've heard of that, but I thought you could get off of it. Uh, they know it's like permanent. You're permanently on this. Okay, where would you start though? Think about that. Yeah, if, you, if you went down the airport right now, you couldn't fly. Where would you start? I don't know. There's no. There's no. Call this eight hundred number, and we could talk to you. Yeah. You go to the white phone and call the eight hundred number, and we could talk about this. No, I'm gonna look. I'm gonna look it up. You know. How do what, I get off the no fly list? What do you, What happens if you got it? You know, somebody's in the know that doesn't like you. <laughs> you stole a security number, so you, you know, and you, again, and, and when I interacted with some of these people, they look shocked. I mean, and I don't know, again, they could be acting. I mean, that's, you know, they, yeah. but they, they didn't have any clue of why they were on that list, you know, and, and a lot of times it's because their name, I mean, I have a common name, I mean, if you, Google my last name. There's a zillion people out there. When when we bought our house, I had to sign a form saying that this is my true and correct name, not an alias. Yeah. Which I I would pick a really cool name like uh, you know <laughs> Dirt Zeke Rogers or something. You Dirt know <laughs> Chucky Farley. But <laughs> but uh, not what not what I ended up with. But uh, anyway, that's what I have on uh, on uh, on FEMA. Well, next week, I think we're, well, not next week, the next time we get together, I think we're going to talk about the um, Pan Am Flight 800. Yes. We won't get into it too deeply, but it's, uh, you know, it was back in uh, 1996, it took off, and um, about 12 minutes after takeoff, it exploded and crashed in the Atlantic, um, killing all 230 passengers, and... Um, you know, the NTSB was on the scene and everything, and, um, they were really, you know, the NTSB, the Navy was there, the Navy got in pretty short order, and, um, they decided that, you know, they sent the divers out, they got, you know, they reconstructed the plane, and I was looking at pictures, and they used it, it um, they used it as a training, um, uh, tool for uh, people involved in the NTSB, but none of the obviously none of the 230 passengers uh, were um, that well. They found them all. They did say that they gathered up all the bodies, and uh, they stated that it was a uh, what did you say? Uh, it was a yeah. They, well, the end the end report that I read indicated that there's a fuel transfer circuit in the belly. Um, those of you that um, uh, understand aviation, um, the airplane has several fuel tanks, not just one. There isn't a, like your car has one gas tank. There's several. There's uh, one in the belly. On this particular uh, aircraft with 747-400, it has wing tanks, belly tanks, a tank in the tail. So during flight, uh, they transfer fuel. Um, whether it's automatic or whether it's pilot initiated. So it was indicated that there was a switch somewhere in the belly tank that sparked. Um, because the tank was empty, um, the fumes ignited, and of course you, you, you know the rest. Um, here's the thing. Um, <laughs> 
the plane just took off, so we wouldn't have yeah. empty fuel tanks. Um, I doubt very seriously it was going to be a trans-Atlantic uh, flight, so I think that they would probably uh, cool. fill the, fill the tanks up. Um, the second thing is is that um, I find it very hard to believe that as Boeing, as successful as they are, and no other 747 has been afflicted by this, that they would put something in the fuel tank of any electricity, of anything, that would spark and cause this. Um, one, one of the stories I read was that they use oxygen or something to fill in the void and then it ignited the oxygen which ignited so there was a spark uh, or something i don't know if if you would um i don't know if it's if oxygen you, i don't know if you'd want to introduce kerosene the fumes of kerosene along oxygen. with pure oxygen well then they said well they changed that and then they're like well based on Based on the results, they said then they changed it to nitrogen because it's inert, I guess. But that being said, I don't really believe the story because, you know, they got seven, over 100 eyewitnesses said that they saw something like they saw flames shooting from the ground or the ocean. Not really the ground, the ocean going up, which indicates might be a missile or two. They said... Well, more yeah. than one. You know? Well, the thing is about the fuel tanks, it would make more sense to just vent to the to the atmosphere. If you, if you want to eliminate pressure in the tank, yeah. uh, the fumes, you know, you could go just to a certain level and just, just you yeah. know, vent to the... But getting back to your witnesses, yeah, there was not just a couple people. There was a lot of people that saw, and, and it was documented that the military was doing maneuvers, some type of a war game or maneuvers out there. Um, that's why they were on scene so quickly. Were they, but they weren't, they stated that they weren't in the area. Well, the missile, <laughs> a missile can go a long way. <laughs> yeah, but they said it was, they said it, it was, was straight up. Um, yeah, they said it was like right underneath, like right underneath where the uh, plane had been. Well, didn't we shoot down a plane over the med? Yeah, we did. My, I have a relative that, um, yeah, we did, mm -hmm. and, and that was well, that was that was human error. Yeah, but still, um, well, if this, if this turned out to be a missile, I would hope it's <laughs> it's human error or not intentional. Um, yeah, I have a note here that says the USS Sea Wolf. It was a submarine was in the oh, area, okay. um, but it doesn't that it does it does not have. Um, allegedly missile capability um that this that my source um states so um it's if somebody saw i mean they're just discounting they said well well what's the what's the flames that were going up from the ground up to the up to the aircraft i thought no. there was somebody who took a picture i don't know if that like, i don't know if it was that rain coming down or they said it was what the NTSB said with the flame was an actual, that was, they were seeing something that um, the plane was producing, that the plane had produced, that it, that was actually after, to your point, it was kind of after, um, you know, the incident happened, and they then they saw these flames, but I mean, there was, I would like to say there was like 95 people that said, of the witnesses, it was, it was a lot of people that said, page. we saw before the plane came down, two streaking 
flames going up toward uh, the aircraft itself, and it's you know it's um, it's who knows you know, but they didn't, and there were there was uh, residue that indicated propulsion from something similar to a missile that they discovered on it when they pulled the body, the aircraft fuselage up. And then they said that it, and then um, that was explained away by saying that, that, well, that was there because we planted it there because we were doing it. Um, we we were doing some training with canines to smell the stuff. <laughs> so, oh my God. You know, it's like, so it's, it's all about, you know, I mean, I was surprised in the Gulf when we admitted that we actually... Well, now you have to understand, in the Gulf, the difference between that is other other governments were investigating. So, yeah. you're best to come clean. Yeah, because it's going to get discovered. But, but here, it was just strictly U.S. investigations. Yeah. So, you know... Um, um, As I said, if there's a design flaw in the 747, that was the only aircraft in the entire life. Now, obviously, afterwards, you would yeah. make changes. But prior to that, in that aircraft, there was never an incident of that happening. Now, you know, I mean, you can go either way, but why would the witnesses say they saw something streak? Somebody said, uh, what, I read one of the discounts, that it was the sun um, reflecting off of the ocean. And I'm like, it was in the evening. Night? Yeah, I said it was in the evening, and the, <laughs> and the sun doesn't set in the east. So it's kind of like it could be in the morning, but it wasn't in the morning. It was in the evening. Well, it's one of those things, so, like with the UFOs, where they say, "Oh, they were looking at Venus." It was yeah. a UFO, and it was no, it wasn't Venus. It was something very shiny. So, um, well, we'll yeah, have to do a little more play. We're going to do. We have a lot more uh, information. On the Flight 800 incident, that's just kind of a teaser as to what's going to be coming up in a in a few weeks. That's only because um, he got bored with my FEMA stuff, but that's okay. Yeah, that's okay. Well, we've we, we've talked about <laughs> all we can talk about on FEMA in our life, under our personal life, of course. That, that that's it. So we're now on uh, YouTube. No, we're on YouTube now. Right? Oh no, we're on YouTube. We're, okay. we're we're for everybody. I know there's been some comments about and there's no video. There's going to be video. Uh, Coming up, we're you working. We have to, I have to work. You're gonna have to now. work. Oh, you can't come in here and just wear a crazy t-shirt. <laughs> I want you in a suit and tie. <laughs> but yeah, we're on. Uh, we're on YouTube, so we're gonna wrap it up. Thank you for listening to the Alien Probe podcast. Well, thanks for having me again. Well, you know, Kevin, we appreciate it. Um, we welcome your comments and questions to AlienProbePodcast at gmail.com. Visit us on Facebook at AlienProbe.net. And also make sure you check us out on YouTube. Check out Robert. Uh, we're on Twitter at AlienProbePod. Thanks to our senior producer, Robert Anthony. Be sure you check out our new logo. Robert finally got the real logo that he always wanted. So, Robert, congratulations. I know you didn't like the silly little cartoon alien that uh, in front of the microphone uh, we, we got one so uh, Robert upgraded us so um, we're gonna be getting some t-shirts out there pretty soon get you a t-shirt Kevin oh, that'd be nice and thanks for listening see you next time